You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Support for the Projection Booth Podcast comes from Stitcher Smart Radio. Now podcast listeners can access the latest episodes of the Projection Booth and thousands of other podcasts on the go without downloading or syncing. Stitcher instantly delivers episodes of your favorite shows to your mobile phone. Stitcher Smart Radio can be found in the iPhone and Android app stores or on the web at stitcher.com slash booth. lost the urge to experiment. Oh, every time you touch me, I go out of my mind. kept alive by experimental science, by a man whose abnormal passions inspired him to try the impossible. I brought her back. She'll live and I'll get her another body. Yes, and what of her soul? How can you make of her an experiment of horror? His mad ambitions and desires threaten every woman possessing an attractive body. Girls whose measurements make them beauty contest participants. Professional figure models such as this. All are prey to his distorted desires. What's locked behind that door? Horror. No normal mind can imagine. Something even more terrible than you. Horror has its ultimate. And I'm that. Behind that door is the sum total of Dr. Cordner's mistakes. He intends to kill somebody. To rob them of their body. We've got to stop him. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Rob St. Mary. I'm still trying to figure out how to get ahead in this crazy world. Also joining us this week is Kevin Heffernan, the author of Ghouls, Gimmicks, and Gold, Horror Film and the American Movie Business. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be here. I'm a big fan of the Projection Booth. This week we are talking about the 1960 cult classic, The Brain That Wouldn't Die. It's the story of Dr. Bill Cortner, a scientist who has been working on groundbreaking research in the transfer and grafting of limbs. One fateful night, he gets into a terrible accident. He's fine, but his fiancée, Jan Compton, has become a regular Jane man. Mansfield. Not one to shirk adversity, Bill takes Jan's head back to his secret laboratory where his assistant and the closet-bound mistake reside. Bill's determined to find a new body for Jan, the hotter the better, while Jan has plans of her own. Kevin, as our guest, when did you first see The Brain That Wouldn't Die, and what was your initial impression? Well, I saw it on a UHF TV station at 2 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday during a sleepover with one of my friends when I was about 8 years old. And it just completely blew my mind. I'd never seen gore like that on TV. I'm sure we'll be talking about the gore later on. Uh, And it seemed to be these 
two or three movies uh, clumsily but uh, gloriously stitched together. It just had these really weird uh, shifts of tone and, and weird bits of black comedy, and it just scared the hell out of me. I had to sleep with the light on for several months afterwards. I'll admit that the first time I saw it was Mystery Science Theater. So <laughs> that's where I was cool. introduced to cool. The Brain That Wouldn't Die. I think that's where I've seen a lot of movies for the first time, so there's nothing to be ashamed of with that one. I mean, Mystery Science Theater, they're the ones that brought Manos into my life and a whole lot of other things. So I think, like Kevin, I had happened to see this one not late at night, but I probably saw it on an afternoon creature feature kind of thing. And it made one hell of an impression on me between Jan and her head talking in the pan and the creature in the closet that does some nasty stuff. I was pretty impressed with it. And going back and rewatching it a few times for the show, uh, yeah, it does definitely feel like it's this kind of Frankenstein of a few different ideas and things going on. I mean, it's not as bad as something as, you know, they saved Hitler's brain or something where it's two movies kind of cut together, but there are so many big shifts in the film. It is kind of like a, a Frankenstein's monster of movies. Well, you know, the surrealists in the 1920s used to go from theater to theater and as soon as the, a plot would coalesce, they would say, hey, this is boring. You know, what they were there for was this hallucinatory engagement with these hyper operatic moments of high drama. And I think that the brain that wouldn't die is probably some kind of unintentional surrealism because they're just these moments that are would be crazy in any film. And then to have them all together in one film uh, is is really quite extraordinary. I mean, it all starts off fairly normally. I mean, it starts off in an operating theater where we've got Bill and his dad, which is kind of weird, a father and son surgery team. And the patient isn't making it, so Bill jumps in there and he's doing these heroic measures. And actually, everything that he's talking about and doing to this patient doesn't sound too crazy to me. It sounds like the exact same stuff that Hawkeye would do on MASH. Mm -hmm. The patient's okay. They take their little break they give a whole bunch of exposition about how jan is there and she's the fiance and how they're going away for the weekend and then he gets a mysterious call from the cabin in the woods and he's got to go up there with jan and that's when all hell breaks loose that's when we've got the accident and the plot takes off from there and then really it kind of splits into like two films for quite a long time when we've got jan brought back to life in the pan and having this the serum keeping her neck and everything above the neck alive and remarkably she's able to talk and everything which is great even though she has no lungs or diaphragm or larynx or anything like that and she rocks the eye makeup too she does man that eye makeup is killer and she's doing that, and meanwhile, Bill is like, hey, I'm going to get a new body. And then that's where the movie just splits off into two really separate things. It's really the scenes in the lab between Jan and Kurt that I think are among the craziest things in the film. Kurt is coded by 1950s standards uh, as, as gay or a feat, certainly an overt misogynist. Uh, at one point, he says he, he should have uh, cut out your tongue while he was at it. And she and Kurt get angrier and angrier at each other, and their hostility 
their growing hostility is intercut with Bill's increasingly psychotic and menacing trolling for these body parts. And like you said, by the end of the film, when Bill finds the person that he thinks is going to be the donor, that's right at the moment that things really come to a head between uh, Jan and Kurt and the thing behind the closet door. Kurt, the assistant who had called Bill up from the city to the cabin, he's got the mangled arm, which Bill tried to put on. So I don't know if, if Kurt's necessarily angry with Bill because he was able to do this miraculous thing for Jan and he wasn't able to help Kurt out. But yeah, Kurt is a very, very angry soul. Well, he says, once, once we're done with you, then it'll be my turn which is strange on a number of levels when you think about it. The thing behind the door, I love how he doesn't show up until right at the end. You know, you get the the knocking and the threat of him throughout the rest. And the vomiting and the the retching and the grunting, it's really quite extraordinary. Well, you know, low-budget horror does that extremely well, withholding the reveal until late in the film. The monster in the closet is one of these elements that appears to be part of another film almost but i think in terms of the the psychosexual dynamics of the film he kind of has to be there because jan is 1950s america's ultimate phobic fantasy about a woman it's a woman that's pure will she doesn't have a body she's just this this pure intellect with with the power to plan revenge and the, the drooling seven-foot-tall monster behind the closet is the sort of ultimate expression of the male id. And so uh, Bill and, and Kurt on one hand and then uh, Jan and the potential donors, particularly the lesbian Doris, and the monster really form this, this extraordinary sort of psychosexual quadrangle in terms of the way the movie is actively working constantly with both titillation and revulsion. That's one of the other things that's sort of crazy about the movie is it has this this leering voyeuristic quality at the same time. Uh, it's just full of sleaze. You could just cut the sleaze in the film with a knife. But to me, it feels like a very clean sleaze. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. it, it, it's in there. And I think it was uh, – some of it's kind of coded. Like I remember there's this dialogue in the beginning in the operating theater between the um, uh, the, the father and the son and, and Jan as well. And, and it's a line like, well, your grandkids won't be test tube babies, right, which is right. an obvious to, you know, yes, we're sexual. You know, and then all of the sort of stripper stuff that's in there, and and the film kind of reminds me of um, like three different movies kind of stitched together. When you look at it, like it kind of wears its influences in one way. One is obviously uh, Frankenstein with the you know the monster in the closet, but also the the line that his dad says about playing God, which. I can almost hear Colin Clive delivering, you know, now I know what it's like to be God and all that. And then you have sort of this um, 1950s burlesque, you know, loops that have been put in there. And then this little sci-fi love story in a little way, you know. So it's it's kind of interesting kind of how these three things kind of kind of come in and, and, and play together and are stitched together. And uh, it seems to work out 
pretty well. Actually, you know, the thing is, is like I said, this is probably the first time for this show sitting down and watching the whole thing without the little guys in the corner making comments. And it actually it, it holds up pretty well for me, considering uh, its age and what it tries to accomplish. Well, Rob, you mentioned the the coding of the the sexual material. That's all throughout the film. Doris, uh, at one point, says to Bill, "You know, you know, after my boyfriend abused and disfigured me, I hate all men." And she tries to leave a note when he, she leaves with him, and he says, "Who's the note for?" And she says, "That's for my girlfriend." And then at one point, when he's trying to convince her to come with him, he says, "Remember, I helped you before." And I think that's a reference to a back alley abortion. So there's all kinds of barely disguised sleaze in here. Uh, The cat fight between the two strippers with the little screeching cat sound on the soundtrack. I mean, you know, it certainly had to be released in some form vaguely commensurate with the production code uh, of the time but i think between the gore and the stripping and the and the subtext i, I think this is pretty far out there especially to a uh, for a movie that would be released fairly unceremoniously as part of a double bill by aip and then just shown in the middle of saturday afternoon for kids to watch it's got a lot of, of of stuff that's that's happening, not necessarily overtly, but it's fairly readily available if you look for it. Well, one of the great things about exploitation films is that they endlessly recycle these motifs and situations, and their logic of recombining them is often non-existent. It's, it's literally this sort of stew of all of the stuff that they can put in the film. And I think one of the reasons that the the pleasures that we get from the brain that wouldn't die are so delirious uh, is that that these elements that they're pulling from various genres and various forms of pop culture really don't go together well at all in many respects. And I think that's one of the reasons that people find the film so fascinating is just at any given moment, it can appear to turn on a dime into a totally different tonal register. Even the places where they choose to go back to Jan and Kurt and the monster in the closet versus the Bill storyline, it's a little bit of a shock for me. Like, oh yeah, okay, we're back here. But because some of Bill's scenes just go on for so long, it's like the pacing and the plotting of those scenes Sometimes it's just like, okay, enough already, and it, which is weird because if anything doesn't hold up well, it's some of the performances by the women that Bill is kind of, of hunting and looking for the, the right women and stuff. It, you were talking about that cat fight scene. That is one of the most bizarre scenes for me is the stuff that leads up to that. You've got your nerve. Oh, look who's talking. Why don't you haul your beat-up body back to the bar with the rest of the flies? Keep your G-string on. I only came in here to change my clothes. I got admission. No, I'd like to see the rest of the show. Come back in half an hour and maybe you will. Get lost. Hi, lover boy. I see you've met the queen. Hey. Come here, don't hide. You know, you've got the kind of face a girl doesn't mind looking at. Even out front, all the other girls are asking about you. Get out of here. Choose company. Three's a crowd. Who's to tell me to blow if I don't want to? 
this here is my dressing room too, remember? It kills her to see me make time. You're the only thing that's going to be made around here tonight. Honey. Eat your heart out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, I'd better be going, hmm? Bill is just, he's the man when it comes to being able to attract women. He has no problem whatsoever when he's going out into the world and looking for this new body for Jan. Women are just falling all over themselves to be with Bill. So much so that when it comes to him going to this club and picking up one woman and another one comes in, you know, they start fighting over him. It's just, it's almost like this bizarre male fantasy of how potent Bill is just being able to pull up next to a woman and pretty soon he's got a whole you know group of them like ready willing and able to you know go with him wherever he wants to take them hey good looking we'll be back to pick you up later well this movie is a catalog of bizarre male fantasies you 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 could you could pretty much take the DSM and sketch out all the dysfunctional male fantasies about women, uh, put them in a, in a, uh, in a pan and pull them out and get about 10 or 15 of them. And that would be this movie. But I think one of the reasons those hunting scenes go on so long is they're structured around that voyeuristic look at the women. And so they, they sort of put the women up on the screen and we cut to these leering reaction shots of Bill and they're really kind of, as you point out, they're kind of not going anywhere. But those those scenes between Jan and Kurt are really crisply, if hamily, performed. And they're extraordinarily well-written, if overwritten. One of my friends said that the that, that scenes are like, um, the scenes with Kurt and Jan are like a Samuel Beckett play. You know, you could imagine, you know, Crap's last tape instead of this old guy listening to tape recordings of himself as a younger man. It's this bitter old scientist who hates women forced to sit in a room with with this tiny little loudmouth woman's head in a pan on one side of him and on the other side this sort of monstrous phobic male fantasy of of, of virility and violence behind the door it's it's those scenes are actually i think among the best and most effective in the film but like you said by the time we spend the whole middle section of the film cross cutting back and forth they don't seem to be from the same movie at all I love that Jan, not only does she have this new power to be able to live in this liquid, but her mental abilities now. Suddenly she has this kind of superpower where she's able to communicate with that rampant male id that's behind the closet door. And I wouldn't say she's able to control it. And I think that's, of course, the biggest problem is that inability to control that that id. But her being able to communicate, even just telepathically with it, I found very fascinating that she now can, can do that in her present state. Well, she's Bill's double in that sense. Bill is out in this world hunting where his power over these women is unquestioned, that he he can manipulate them into doing things that he wants them to do. And then we keep cutting back to Jan developing her own set of powers. And Kurt is our stand-in, viewing her first with contempt and then with escalating alarm. You know, and I suppose if you wanted to take a more or less thoroughly misogynistic film and and try to read a feminist subtext in it, I mean, the movie is, if nothing else, a phobic fantasy of of Chan's ultimate empowerment over the over the, the second half of the film. So, what kind of stuff did you find out when you're doing your research on this movie? One of the things that really fascinates me about this period from the 50s to the 70s is this 
proliferation of locally produced regional low-budget horror movies. And there's a there's a number of reasons for this. Uh, one was when the Hollywood studios had to sell off their theaters and cut back on production, a lot of movie theaters found themselves with a shortage of product to play. And in 1953 and then again in 1956, movie exhibitors actually went to Congress and said, you've got to help us here. You've got to arbitrate film rentals. You've got to keep the majors from charging us all this money for their first-run movies and all this stuff. And all Congress came up with for them around 56 57 is a new tax shelter law that enabled investors in feature films to deduct on their taxes huge multiples of the amount of money they'd invested in a movie if the movie lost money. What this meant was if I'm a fertilizer salesman in El Paso, Texas, and I put $20,000 into a film, say Manos, The Hands of Fate, and it never makes any money, I could then write off eighty dollars or $100,000 on my taxes. Okay, And this continued into the mid-70s. And so we can look at a movie like Brain That Wouldn't Die that was shot in Terrytown, New York. Uh, we can look at the great Killer Shrews uh, made in Texas by the McClendon radio chain. Uh, and this goes all the way up through uh, the advertising company that, that and local investors that funded Night of the Living Dead to the real estate people who financed the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. All these movies were tax shelter films. Uh, uh, the early movies of John Waters were were tax shelter films. And what happens is in the 70s, people notice that a lot of porn films are financed as tax shelters. So in 76 or so, Congress gets rid of this. And that's when we see, you know, Wes Craven and John Waters and Tobe Hooper and all these people having a hard time to get to get movies made. So the 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 tax shelter laws that were in effect from about 57 to 77 really are huge in understanding where all these bizarre low-budget horror movies came from. Now, Rex Carlton was an interesting guy. He was a guy who specialized in putting these deals together for film financing. And he had this uh, very small production company that was putting together projects uh, that were generally being sold in Europe the idea for the film came to him around 57 when Herman Cohen's movies, I Was a Teenage uh, Werewolf and I Was a Teenage Frankenstein, were big hit. And he told Joseph Green to uh, that they were going to make a movie called I Was a Teenage Brain Surgeon. And they kicked this idea around. Joseph Green was an editor in a film exchange. Uh, he later uh, opened his own distribution company. Uh, but at this point, it took him a couple of years to get a project together. They called it The Black Door was the original title. And it was shot in Terrytown, New York, and completed uh, sometime in 1959. And this was a bad time to complete a low-budget horror film, especially if you were trying to sell it to someone like AIP or Allied Artists, because both AIP and Allied Artists were moving away from these low-budget black and white films into more ambitious films in color and widescreen. The classic example of this would be AIP's Edgar Allan Poe movies with Vincent Price. So they actually had to shop this movie around for two or three years until it was finally picked up by AIP. At this point, uh, AIP was actually needing more of these cheap black and white 
movies to fill out their release schedule. Roger Corman produced a number of these under his own company film group. You know, Dementia 13, Francis Ford Coppola's widely considered first mainstream film came out of came out of film group. So the movie was released as part of a double bill with a movie called Invasion of the Star Creatures, which is kind of a of a beatnik sci-fi comedy parody. And the movie always had the gore in it. This is something that people get wrong. The movie was released in theaters with all the gore scenes intact, and it was released to TV later with all the gore scenes. There was one video release in the 80s from Warner Home Video that for reasons nobody understands had the two gore set pieces taken out, but those were always part of the movie. Um, And it really kind of sank as part of you know, AIP's annual release schedule. And it wasn't until it was released to TV years later that it really kind of became a cult classic. Looking up all the ways that this was presented, I mean, it's been in the public domain for quite a few years. It seems like every horror host that has done any kind of work ever has done the brain that wouldn't die. I mean, as I was looking around, I found, you know, Elvira, as we said before, MST3K has done a version, Goulardi, Wolfman Mac here in Detroit, Mr. Lobo. I mean, it was, it's just, there are so many different hosts that have taken this on. And Zachary, too. Uh, he, he came back in the 80s and did a, a VHS original called Zachary's Horrible Horror, and he did a, a whole little bit with Brain That Wouldn't Die in that, too. So ab- you're absolutely right. Everybody's taking a shot at it. I was very happy. I watched both the Elvira, the Mr. Lobo, and the uh, MST3K versions, and those are fantastic. The Mr. Lobo Cinema Insomnia is his show, and I had never seen it before all the way through, and I really enjoyed it. So it was, uh, it's out there somewhere on DVD for folks to pick up and enjoy, and it is definitely worth uh, worth it. And then the Brain That Wouldn't Die MST3K version apparently is going to be in this new box set that they're putting out uh, I think in the next couple weeks so that'll be uh, something good for folks to check out because that is I have to say that's pretty darn good and I'm not a big Mike Nelson fan but it was this was his first film that he was hosting after Joel left the satellite of love so it was nice to uh, to see that episode you're right these are wonderful presentations but I'd like to take just a second to give a shout out to the wonderful folks at Synapse Uh, and thank them for their gloriously restored uh, non-parody release of the film from about seven or eight years ago. Synapse and their their adult film imprint, uh, Impulse Pictures, is really one of the best video companies we have out there, and I really think it was an extraordinary gesture of good faith and integrity for them to spend the money and take the time of putting together a really glorious-looking version of a movie uh, that's that's infinitely viewable in many, many cheaper and inferior versions. So, so I think I think all of all of your listeners should run out and buy the Synapse uh, version before they uh, pick up any of these others, if you don't mind my saying so. I don't mind at all. In fact, I have to say it is like night and day being able to see what I remember in my head is this kind of grainy, crappy looking movie and then seeing the Synapse version, which just 
is glorious. The restoration efforts are amazing. It really gave me a lot more appreciation. And I have to say that those scenes of Jan are just wonderful. She is gorgeous and it is a beautiful, the, the blacks and whites and everything, the composition is, is really nice. It's better than it really even has to be, <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. they, they didn't have to make it look so nice. I'm not saying Synapse, but Joseph Green, he didn't have to do that good of a job with this kind of thing, but I have to say there's a lot of beautiful photography in it at times. They were completely controlling all of the elements uh, that they were shooting in that in that studio set. When they move the camera outside, results may vary. Yes. <laughs> but all of those scenes in the lab are really, really crisply shot and edited. And there's, there's one extraordinary shot where we follow the bubbling adreno serum through the tube down into her neck and we tilt up to her eyes, and she closes her eyes in this look of almost erotic bliss as she feels this power welling up uh, in her. Uh, and then the music, uh, wonderful, wonderfully chosen DeWolf Library music, sort of wells up in these sort of stabbing figures in the, in the string section. It's really a very, very effective moment. I mean, these guys really knew what they were doing. You mentioned earlier the gore. And really, that's the part that stuck with me for all these years. The scene where Kurt gets his arm ripped off by the monster in the closet. And that smear of blood that he leaves on the wall as he's staggering out of the room. That is the indelible image for me all these years later. Even with Jan in the pan, that is a great image and and, an iconic image. But... That shot of Kurt leaving that trail of blood is what stuck with me, and that's kind of the reason why this movie sticks out for me and why I kind of wanted to do it. Oh, it's traumatizing. That shot actually with him uh, smearing his uh, the blood from his, his now stump or whatever, his removed arm across the wall, reminded me of the shot in Tenebrae that Dario Argento has, but obviously much more uh, much more gory and much more red as opposed to black and white. Well, I mean, there's no way they could have gotten away with geysers of blood on the wall. I mean, I, that's just, I'm thinking, like, this is about as, as harsh as it can possibly get in 1959. Kurt's death scene is scored with this incredibly strange mocking dance theme. It's a it's a bolero or a gavotte or something like that, and and there appear to be these laughing, mocking brass instruments that that come in there periodically. It's it the scoring of the scene is is very disjunctive. It's not the sort of way you would imagine they would score the scene. And then he staggers upstairs, collapses in a chair next to. A marble bust, which looks like Jan in the pan, and he grabs his heart with his withered hand and dies in the chair. And it's just so excessive. It's such a grand guignol moment. Uh, as Mike said, it's just once you've seen that, you can never forget it. With the production, I was wondering. Did you find that there were any sources for this? Because obviously uh, 
there's some nods to, I would say, Frankenstein. World War II, we had something like, you know, Joseph Mengele and all of his Nazi experiments. But then there was also the thing with the head. And I was reading this book called How to Make a Zombie by Frank Swain, in which he talks about science and various animals and insects and things like that within the uh, animal kingdom and how certain elements of what we would call the zombie character can be found in certain things that are done. And one that he brings up was this experiment from the late 30s, early 40s that was done in Russia where the scientist had cut the head off a dog and then pumped fluids into it and appeared to bring it back to life. And this was in this uh, documentary film that was created. And I was wondering if that was a possible source in terms of creating the idea of putting her head in a pan. That's a great thing to think about. I think that in the late 50s, Joseph Mengele made his way into horror cinema through Peter Cushing's portrayal of Baron Frankenstein, particularly in Revenge of Frankenstein. Revenge of Frankenstein has him as this guy supposedly working in a charity hospital and he's really using it to harvest these pieces for his experiments and and some of this is taken up by Whit Bissell as the uh, descendant of Dr. Frankenstein and I was a teenage Frankenstein and I, and I think that this idea of of medical horror really starts to pick up steam there in about 58, 59, Eyes Without a Face, which comes out after uh, Brain That Would Die is actually completed. Uh, and then by the time we get to some of the Italian horror films of the 60s, uh, Horror Castle in 1963 has a subplot in which the person who's the killer was actually a victim of Nazi experimentation. So I think that from about 1956, 1957 to 1965, a lot of the medical atrocities that had been documented in the World War II years and following were really starting to seep into popular culture at an increasing rate. And, and I, I wouldn't be surprised at all Rob, if if some of these stories of medical atrocities reached sort of oral lore status uh, and then began to be plugged into many, many kinds of popular fiction. If you look at the men's magazines of the 1950s with the, their sort of pulp stories in there, American GIs or American commandos rescuing women from surgical camps became one of the dominant story devices that we see in a lot of these magazines. So I, I would say that it's very, very likely that the stories of medical atrocities from a few years earlier were, were getting plugged back into popular culture in this time. I think that's very, very likely. There was also, um, you know, people obviously think of uh, Dr. Mengele, you know, Joseph Mengele when it comes to medical experimentation. And I think also sort of what gets overlooked was that there was also uh, similar in the Pacific. Not a lot of people, um, I don't think it's really as uh, discussed as often in American history. I mean, obviously we look at 
Mengele and I, I think it was Nazi atrocities were were much more covered than what we what we saw with uh, what went on in the Pacific. And there was actually a unit. I, I found this out a few years ago. There was a, a unit that was uh, Japanese uh, soldiers that did similar things in uh, China, because obviously there was a lot of. Uh, there's still a lot of hatred between the, the the Chinese and the Japanese when it comes to some of the things that uh, the Japanese delivered upon the Chinese people during World War II. Well, we don't talk about this because it's not in our history books, but I, I know for a fact my Chinese graduate students uh, here in the film program at SMU have told me that, that uh, Chinese – High school kids know all about the medical atrocities that that unit committed. There was even a trilogy of of unwatchably gruesome Hong Kong films uh, produced in the 1980s uh, that that were about this. The best made of them. That was a trilogy. Has an English title, Laboratory of the Devil. Those stories of medical atrocities and mutilation and human experimentation and genocide are very, very well known in the Chinese-speaking world. And that that serves, in many cases, a similar function in their lore of human depravity. So once again, it's, it's just it's kind of that you know, we live on the other side of the world and, and, and we don't we don't know about it that much, but every high school student studying the 1930s and the 1940s knows the story of that Japanese medical unit. Actually, I didn't find out about it until a few years ago because being a Slayer fan, there was a song called Unit 731, and I went yes. and looked that up. Yes. And that was the discussion saying about, you know, there was this unit and they did all this biological and medical experimentation, which was basically on par with what Mengele was doing, although I think he had more... I think he had more victims than they did, but it doesn't matter anyway. But the whole thing is, is that all of this stuff seems to come out of World War II and sort of playing with those um, th- those ideas and sort of, I guess, exercising these uh, these horrors in some way through horror film. Well, you know, the gothic motifs that had sustained the horror film through the 40s just seemed quaint by the post-war period. And then, and then reports were coming over from Asia about psychological operations and brainwashing, and and so there was there was this this idea that the anarchic horrors of the Gothic fantasy had been replaced by an infinitely more terrifying, completely rationalized, compartmentalized, premeditated institutional violence being inflicted on human bodies by institutions of authority. And and I think we can see that in a lot of American uh, horror films and psychological thrillers in the 1950s. This, many of the motifs that we might have associated with uh, a family curse or or vampirism uh, uh, gets recast in this in this idea of the purely remorseless scientist or the purely remorseless corporate sponsor of uh, science which we'll talk about I'm sure later when we talk about professor Dowell one thing I always find interesting 
is how movies like Brain That Wouldn't Die or even a few weeks ago we talked about Eating Raul and how that became a musical you know, no hairspray is a musical. You know, uh, Cry Baby became a musical. Is like how people sit down and decide that they want to take something and then adapt it into another form. And um, sort of, what have you seen with this? Because I guess, Mike, there's several different versions of a musical based around the brain that wouldn't die. Yeah, I was lucky enough to talk to three different people that have adapted Brain for musicals. A guy in Texas a guy in New York and a guy down in Arizona and I think one of the biggest boons is that it is in the public domain and that you're not looking at rights uh, to have to pay somebody for reinterpreting this and it kind of speaks to some of the stuff that we've talked about before Rob as far as the whole idea of having something in the public domain and being able to give it your spin uh, versus having to kind of fight the system. And, you know, I mean, of course, there's a whole thing of proper credit and proper payments and all these kind of things. But there's the idea that after so many years, something does go into the public domain and then you can put your own spin on it, make it your own, do whatever you need to do with it. And, you know, we've seen that, unfortunately, Night of the Living Dead never had a copyright, but it has produced a whole lot of other things. I mean, we talked about Mimesis, you know, about a year ago. And, you know, Brain That Wouldn't Die is one of those projects that you can utilize and make it your own. And these gentlemen have made a musical version out of it. So with that, I'm going to uh, say, let's take a break and I'll play back the trio of interviews with those folks who took the brain that wouldn't die from the screen to the stage, putting on musical versions of the film after these important messages. Return of the living podcast. We're here today with Bill Obhurst Jr. I'm in Hollywood. I can look out the back door and I can see the Hollywood sign up on the hill. There's no one jumping from the Hollywood sign at the moment. Is that a natural occurrence? Does that that occur often? It actually hasn't happened in decades, but that's one of the only ways to become famous here if you're kind of like a low-grade actor. Um, You climb up to the top and jump off and then suddenly you're famous. It hasn't happened in decades, but damn it, he's hoping to see it every damn day. Every day I open the back door. I'm like, what? It's going to be a great morning. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Now part of the 76th Street Network. Find them on iTunes.com and Stitcher.com by searching 76th Street Network. Don't have Stitcher? Download the Stitcher app from the Apple Store or Android Market. Also, find them on Facebook.com as well as on Twitter at 245TStudios. You know, I was looking for a little excitement, but I was worried about privacy. And then I found out about Vibrators.com. Vibrators.com has the perfect products for women and men and couples. They have helpful suggestions and information on how to make sure you get something just right for you. Plus, for over a decade, Vibrators.com has never played around with your privacy. While other dot-coms make their money by selling your information, Vibrators.com never has and never will. And when you use the special code BOOTH, that's B-O-O-T-H, at checkout, you'll receive free priority shipping on any order. That's Vibrators.com. Get a little excitement in your life. 
Hey fans, this is Reverend Scott. Just want to tell you about Outside the Cinema. Great company. They review cult films, any cult film, every cult film. And it's something you should tune into. So if you get a chance, go to the website, look these guys up, Outside the Cinema, and find out what the hot cult films are today. What's going on? These guys are right on the cutting edge of reviewing cult movies. And if you're a cult member or you want to be a cult member, you're thinking about being a cult member, your mom's a cult member, your dad's a cult member, your damn mother-in-law's a cult member, tune in outside the cinema, baby, and you'll find out what's going on. Reverend Scott, and that's out. Good evening, folks. Do you enjoy action and adventure, romance and comedy? How about long strolls on the beach and a fine champagne by moonlight? Do you like pina coladas and getting caught in the rain? Or would you rather listen to some in-depth conversation about film where many timely and poignant observations and witticisms are made? Mo here from the Drunk on VHS podcast. And if you like any of those things, then I have some bad news for you. Drunk on VHS has none of these. But you should listen anyway. Because I asked him nicely and said, please, await. Please tune in every Wednesday for new episodes exclusively at CouchCare.com. Bring the family. Bring your friends. bad movie in so many ways it still had that you know the basic Frankenstein story only told from a very kind of twisted perspective of uh, the doctor going out and trying to find a, a fresh new female body for his uh, fiance and going to a strip club and going to a uh, beauty pageant and it just seemed like something that would be a lot of fun to, to put on stage Tom Civic I had actually never seen the movie before uh, although I've heard of it. I think most people have heard of it. So I, I, I watched it on online, and I, I, this is it. I mean, I loved it. It's just so quirky and insane. Kevin Fry. I, I never would have thought to do The Brain You Wouldn't Die. I'd never seen it. And in fact, when they, when they uh, showed it to me, I fell asleep. <laughs> when you approach The Brain That Wouldn't Die, how do you kind of go about turning that film into a musical? took the, the film, watched it over and over again, transcribed the film itself just to see, you know, where, where some of the, the, the dialogue and the, the plot lines and all that. And then really, because you can't really do a film as a stage production necessarily, you have to kind of 
change things and maybe condense the number of characters, maybe make some characters kind of composites or, or shorten scenes or, uh, or, or uh, turn other scenes into uh, transition scenes that maybe were longer. So uh, it's, it's just a, a long process, about 10, 11 months or so before it's ready for production. The very first version, uh, I, I stuck, stuck very closely to the, the uh, new movie script and uh, inserted songs uh, where it seemed appropriate to me. I had a reading uh, in my home with some professional actors and was not happy with it. Uh, and that started the journey that really has only culminated in the last few months. I was kind of making my name for, a name for myself around town as someone who wrote musicals and was interested in that. And a group of guys at a little theater down here uh, was wanted to adapt that movie into a musical. So it was their idea. So they brought me in, and you know, I, I kind of retooled the script and wrote the songs, and then uh, that was it. What I do, I do for the benefit of man, and I'll do anything that a doctor can. To do less would simply be an abomination. And I'm close, close to what? To the key, to the key to what? Transplantations. Here's the news: I lose some patients, but I contend that's outweighed by the scientific dividend. I wanted to see Jan in the pen. I wanted to see see her sing this lovely slow ballad. You know, this head on on in a pan on a table singing a ballad. I thought that would be a great great looking visual for a stage production. So we, we started kind of started with that. Those were the first lyrics I wrote for it. For that particular scene, even though it's, it looked great, just the head in the pan singing the song, the director and, and I kind of worked out that maybe there needed to be some more movement in that scene too. So we added a headless dancer doing kind of a ballet interpretation of the song while, the, while Jan was singing it. The head on the table, the nice set piece, it's broken up into these nice scenes and, and there's a lot of opportunity for camp and, and uh, you know, he, he goes and sort of basically interrogates or interviews these three, you know, these different girls looking for the body and it's just a nice setup for, for scenes and comedy. You know, the premise of our show um, is that the movie that was shot in 1961 was not really a science fiction B-movie. It was a documentary. <laughs> these events actually happened. Uh, as you know, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the movie. At the end of the movie, everybody is dead um, except the girl whose head was about to be cut off by uh, um, the mad doctor uh, and the monster himself. He carries her out of the burning laboratory. So we assume that at the end of the, the movie, they were survivors. So that monster, the monster in the closet, because he had been taking adreno serum this whole time um, and it, it, it mutated uh, his brain, as they mentioned in the movie, to the point at which he became intelligent and he actually went out and got an MFA. Uh, he decided to bring his story to the stage. And so he is the producer, the author, and uh, the composer and the lyricist and the choreographer uh, of The Brain That Wouldn't Die in 3D. He just wants to bring his story to a, uh, to a new generation. He's the master of ceremonies of the show, so we call him the MC. But really, MC stands for monster in the closet <laughs> and you don't really find that out till the till the end of the show but i think you know you, you could probably put two and two together and figure that out <laughs> along the way to myself somebody 
get away with ten actors. There's a lot of doubling of characters. Well, actually, I, I think that at the tightest it could be it could be seven actors with a lot of doublings. Um, so where one actor is playing multiple roles, and there's um, you know for the set try to keep it pretty simple. You know, just a table in the center and a door that the creature can hide behind. When we did it in Tucson, we went um, probably overboard on the set. So there we had like a you know a full setup. But I think the show is best when it's kind of like a show in the can. You know, it's really simple. Can't be costumes. The the character. Uh, one of the characters from the strip club, we, we had in, uh, someone in drag played up that kind of thing anywhere we could. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's, a really, it's a really filthy show too. <laughs> so it's um, it's kind of body campy, crazy humor. Everybody plays multiple roles except uh, the two leads, but the MC plays you know four or five roles throughout the movie, and one of them is Dad. You know, he actually plays a female role later in the movie because we only have a cast of five, and there are actually about thirty characters uh, in the movie. So the thirty characters are covered by the five actors. Uh, so I think it just adds to the ludicrousness of the the entire thing that he's so hideous, and yet nobody you know thinks twice about it. You know that he's playing a woman or he's playing uh, Dick's father. You know, um, et cetera. This was a very small theater. It seated about forty-five to fifty people at the most. It wasn't in a regular theater. It's just a long storefront room, all kind of makeshift. And there's a nice lobby. There's a uh, lobby with artwork on it, and we were serving sliced brains that that someone put together from a jello, a brain jello mold, and so someone could grab that for a snack and then go sit down. The uh, theater was set up so the stage, such as it was, the length of the space took up about half the length of the, or, or took about uh, about half the space, uh, the whole length of it, and then the audience sat on the other side. So it wasn't a it wasn't a typical proscenium type of theater. It had a, a basic setup where there were uh, there was a set for Dr. Cortner's house at one end with just basically a, a staircase leading up to a small area for his living room and then the stairs leading down to the basement laboratory. And then the rest of the set was just bare and we're just bringing uh, props and, and uh, pieces on and off the set as quickly as possible. Very much a shoestring budget by the seat of the pants production. I don't think we spent more than $400 <laughs> maybe on uh, props and stuff. So, and, uh, and that was, that, that's what the overtime is. It, is, uh, it drew, drew a good audience. It had, uh, the show ran for three weeks. No, it ran for four weeks. And it had uh, 12 shows, and I think about half of them sold out. So that was pretty good. The production, putting it together was a nightmare because I was directing it, and I was playing Bill. Um, so, and, uh, you know, I was an inexperienced director and it was just, uh, it was a lot of, we were all butting heads. Oh, I'm sorry. I was co-directing it. So there's a lot of head butting. <laughs> and, um, and so it was kind of a nightmare to put together, even though we were all friends and we, we remained friends, but, um, but it got up and it was just kind of a sloppy, crazy, funny show. It ended up being the top seller in the festival and we had people rolling. I, you know, I think it actually benefited from being so kind of crazy and sloppy and, you know, really simple set.
the show was part of uh, the new music, uh, New York Musical Theater Festival in 2011. Um, it was chosen as a Next Link selection, which is uh, their elite. Uh, they 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 co-produced the show, so it premiered there. It had seven performances, and we learned a lot uh, from those seven audiences. Prior to that, we had uh, stage readings, several of them, but that's one audience, you know. And when you have seven audiences in a row, you really get a feel for what jokes uh, are landing and and which ones either need to be cut or tweaked. So we came out of that with a much sleeker, more streamlined version. And uh, I continue to work on it. Uh, I should say we have continued to work on it, Beth and I, since uh, since that. I tend to say I because um, I did start, uh, you know, I did start this proud project on my own. And at a certain point, Beth came on and really helped solidify and condense things down to uh, what they needed to be. She's She's been a great collaborator. Uh, but if I slip and say I, I often actually mean we. I don't possess the assets of those shiny girls Under my simple surface at maybe staging it again uh, in about a year or so. So it would be about the five-year anniversary next October. The woman who played Jan, Christy Beckham, she's a, a fairly well-known actress here in San Antonio, has a great voice, and she loved doing the show, and she'd like to do it again. So I think we're going to try and find another space to do it in, in about a year or so. Other than that, uh, I haven't really you know, pursued plans for trying to publish it or anything like that. Uh, there's not even written sheet music for it, so because the musician Phil Luna, he basically re- recorded all, all the music in his uh, in his studio, and, and we played it uh, via soundtrack. From Nymphon, uh, we've had another few rewrites and another couple of uh, staged readings w- uh, with uh, professional actors in Chicago. We have just now, in the last couple of months, come to a version that we're happy with. So I'm about to send it out. I'm about to, uh, you know, quote-unquote, market it and get a production, a second production past the initial Nymph uh, production we had at uh, at the Musical Theater Festival. We had some nice reviews, uh, and we we had some honest reviews. Uh, I mean, nice and honest, both. Uh, There were five reviews altogether, and uh, we were happy with what was said about the show. But truly, that was a different show than, than what we're about to send out. First of all, the NIMP show had six, uh, six actors in the cast. And we realized about a year ago, the sixth actor was really not necessary. So I ended up parting ways with the guys who initially had, had it. So it was, all, it was amicable, but, amicable, but um, we, we didn't end up being involved in it together. Um, but they were doing like Charles Bush shows, which are all, you know, can't, um, all the lead characters in drag. And they were doing a lot of these kind of 
crazy shows that I'd never seen until I got out of college and started hooking up with these people. And because I wanted to get stuff on stage, plays, so I went to the theaters in town. I was like, oh man, this is really crazy, cool stuff. I'd never seen theater like this. And so, um, so I probably went overboard <laughs> when, when they said they wanted to do this show. I mean, they ended up saying, Kevin, you've made this, uh, you know, you've made this too, too crazy and too raunchy. Um, I think I was right because in the end, you know, people really loved it. And, and, and that's part of the joke because, uh, you know, it seems to be a popular thing nowadays. You know, see gravity in 3D, but no theater uh, productions have ever mentioned being in 3D, you know, until we did. But we try to take that to a different level. We attempt to do, actually, we attempt to do most of the show in 2D. And it's only the finale that's in 3D. Now, how do we do that? Well, one of the things, uh, you might recall the, uh, the old 3D glasses, you know, that were available uh, back in the 50s and 60s, you know, with the red lens and the blue lens, you know, certain things would pop forward a little bit, uh, but not too much, you know. Uh, and, at any rate, we have um, 2D glasses. They have one lens, uh, which is clear, and the other one is blocked off, so you really can only see out of one eye. You kind of lose your depth perception if you look out of one eye, you know, and we, we don't really we don't really expect anybody to watch the whole show with these dumb glasses on. It's more a more a joke than it is uh, uh, an integral part of the show. You know, uh, in fact, if, if the producers don't want to use the glasses, we have them available, you know, and we're ready to provide them for any production that might arise. Uh, but uh, if they choose not to use the glasses, um, the, the pre-show announcement uh, says, uh, you know, please please close your left eye until the, the to, until the 3D finale. All the sets are, are cardboard, you know, they're cardboard flats, you know, uh, everything is, is two, the props are all, are all pieces of, you know, are, are flats so that um, even the costumes, we have a concept by which the costumes kind of look two-dimensional. Uh, and then when we get to the 3D finale, all of those set pieces that you saw in the laboratory earlier in the show are now actual set pieces that are in, you know, that are, of course, three-dimensional. Uh, and the costumes that looked painted on before they're actually wearing costumes you know so the 3d effect is um you know is partially a contrast from the two-dimensional look that you see throughout the rest of the show it's such a great bad movie and uh, the dialogue is so over the top and you know even though it's uh, the retelling of the frankenstein story it's got, got such a nice twist to it and, and weird scenes like the the stripper catfight scene, uh, you know, it's hard to top something like that. So I, I think that's why people are drawn to it. Uh, and of course, you know, people know it from the Mystery Science Theater uh, 3000 version of it, where I think they invented that term, Jan and the PM. My idea of a, of a really great, campy, so awful, it's fun movie is like He Man from the 80s. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, the, the really old stuff from like the, the 60s, I wasn't as familiar with. Was there any fear that maybe Jan would have problems projecting since she really doesn't have a diaphragm? I guess the, the adrenal serum uh, gave her enough uh, lung power, invisible lung power to to belt out those songs. Well, now that you are here, my friends, attend to the tale of a a tale of such unspeakable horrors oh. You might fill your drawers oh. Or end up insane Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh How? Don't ask how Why? Don't ask why But, 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 
to admit the peace exemplifies the very nature of the genre B-movie sci-fi the brain that wouldn't die let me take you back back to 1961 Kennedy is the president Elvis is the king now playing on movie screens across America, the brain that wouldn't die. back. I want to thank our guests for coming on. We'll have links to all of their work, of course, over at our website, projection-booth.com. You know, one of the reasons that these musicals can happen is no one ever imagined that there would be any life to these films after they were on broadcast TV. The words stage adaptation were never in any contract or copyright notice. Who would have thought when you if you were Joseph Green's lawyer or Rex Carlton's lawyer and you were typing up your copyright thing to put the phrase stage adaptation that you reserve all rights to a stage adaptation? There's a Debbie Does Dallas musical and, and Debbie Does Dallas is not in the public domain. That's still owned by the uh, Mickey Zafferano, you know, mafia family. But the copyright notice said nothing about stage adaptation. So they have a stage adaptation of Debbie Does Dallas. It's, it's, it's remarkable. So many of pe- these people thought that they were producing this disposable junk, and they had no idea of the cultural impact that some of this – let's call it what it is – some of this art would have. Like, you know, I'm, I'm sure Rex Carlton and Joseph Green – Giuseppe Verdi, you know, I'm, I'm sure they thought they were putting together a commercial film that they would hope would be distinctive in some way and could have some kind of commercial impact. I, I'm sure they had absolutely no idea that people would be getting drunk in bars and spouting off, you know, Kurt's line about experimentation based on mountains of miscalculation get lost in error and darkness. You know what I mean? Like they never thought that anyone would remember this, much less want to recast it in another form. That's what's that's what's so magical about some of this stuff. It's just you know, it's like they made the movie and then the fans made it culturally significant. That being said, Mike, yeah. Make sure I get the stage rights to Projection Booth. Projection Booth, the musical. There you go. Like in, uh, I always loved in uh, Mr. Show, Rap, the musical, featuring no rap music. Now, Kevin, I want to talk a little bit more about The Brain That Wouldn't Die, and specifically sort of this kind of subgenre of the decapitated but living heads, you know, because really that's what the show's about, right? So we've watched a few of these. We watched, um, Mike and I watched Daddy Cool, and uh, I watched Reanimator, which it's only in there for a few seconds but there are other films that kind of fit into this what is it with this uh you know cut my head off and save it please i think it comes out of the cut my brain out and save it genre the head is more presentable i guess uh but uh kurt sidmack's uh, novel donovan's brain was 
massively adapted The Lady and the Monster with Eric von Stroheim, and then there were a couple of film adaptations in the 50s, particularly um, UA did a great version of Donovan's Brain with Lou Ayers. And so there's this idea of this 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 disembodied intellect, you know, that, that some people, some people have such incredible power, if they were just their isolated brain in a pan, they could still cause tremendous uh, havoc to everyone around them. But uh, you're right. By the time we get to the late 50s, uh, we move from the disembodied brain to the to the head. Of course, I talked earlier about the 1959 uh, Victor Tivas uh, film, The Head, which I think provides an extraordinary number of motifs that we can see in uh, The Brain That Wouldn't Die, uh, the stripper subplot, the switching out the stripper's body for the uh the head of in this case the the hunchbacked nurse as well as this extraordinary production design from herman varm who was one of the designers on the cabinet of dr caligari and the whole movie plays out in this glorious landscape that's like a combination of german expressionism and like swank pad mid-century modern furniture and stuff it's really great uh, and by the way the disembodied head in that film belongs to the scientist who is played by the great french comic actor michel simon uh so the head is really really you know crucial there uh there's a number of uh of films in the 50s uh, the man without a body uh, that actually stars uh george caloris i think from citizen kane doesn't he play a a role in that the thing that couldn't die which is about isn't that the uh, head of a spanish conquistador am i remembering this correctly yes sir uh, yes. yes um a number of these films the frozen dead there's a wonderful review of frozen dead and video watchdog just uh, recently that uh talked about uh the the isolated head in that they saved hitler's brain which is they actually saved the whole head he's in a in a Pan screaming, Mach schnell, Mach schnell. That's a great one. The library of uh, of isolated heads of the presidents in in Futurama. Uh, there are a whole whole bunch of these films, and, and a, a a film that we're going to be talking about later that Mike turned me on to. I really wasn't familiar with this film uh, until you brought it on, brought it up. Uh, a Soviet science fiction film from the waning days of the USSR called The Testament of Professor Dow. That's really a, a very, very remarkable film. So it, it, it reaches this this critical mass. And, and I, I really think The Brain That Wouldn't Die is, is largely responsible for this in the sense that its dissemination as a late-night cult TV film really made – the malevolent head in the pan, a cultural touchstone. I, I genuinely believe that a lot of these films would not exist. A lot of these motifs in popular culture wouldn't exist without the dissemination of The Brain That Wouldn't Die as a sort of cult film. I can see a direct through line from The Brain That Wouldn't Die to Evil Dead 2 and the Linda, her head, taunting Ash. Even You're going down. Well, clearly, Sam Raimi has an encyclopedic knowledge of horror films, and and it's it's. I, mean, I think you're absolutely right, Rob. There's there's no way that he wasn't thinking of that film. Similarly, there's no way uh, with stumbling id-like headless body in Reanimator being 
like the monster from the closet in The Brain That Wouldn't Die and the the famous scene from Reanimator that made Stuart Gordon and Barbara Crampton's career that a bashful college professor daren't describe that scene in detail, but I, I think that the I think that the the head in the pan in Reanimator is is once again clearly derived from the brain that wouldn't die, and there are moments in Bride of the Reanimator in which the homage is even more explicit. But I think you're absolutely right about Evil Dead too, Rob. That's that's absolutely right. I guess you could even say kind of the same thing about Alien when Ash kind of goes crazy. And there's that really kind of over-sexualized attempt at murdering Ripley, and he eventually becomes the flailing body with the disembodied head, which then is a very, very calm head afterwards. You know, it's it's kind of reconsidered life as it's just a head resting there with all the little gobbledygook coming out of its its mouth. It looks kind of like milk, but we're urged not to think about that one too much. Yeah, Some of those shots look even worse than some of the special effect shots in a lot of these films from the 50s and 60s. <laughs> well, the low-budget filmmakers really understood that less is more. The new Hollywood has lost that lesson to, to their chagrin because it doesn't take long for a special effects tour de force to age very, very ungracefully. And a film like The Brain That Wouldn't Die, with its extraordinary bursts of well-chosen, low-tech, gruesome spectacle, can wear a lot better than some of these uh, more expensive variants that we see later in the 80s and the 90s, I think. I definitely saw a lot of similarities between The Head, thank you for turning me on to that one, and then Testament of Professor Dowell, um, which was based on a book from, I think, 1920, a Russian book. So I guess maybe that ties into the Russian experiments that Rob was talking about earlier. But that one wasn't turned into a film until 85. And by that one, we've already had the head and brain that wouldn't die around for a long time. I have to say that it's a fairly faithful adaptation of the original source novel, because I went back and I read that probably about two years ago when I realized that I had started to collect a lot of disembodied head films. That's kind of the, the way that I you know, will, will watch stuff is uh, when I realize that my shelf is piling up with movies of a similar sub-theme or a theme, I'll, I'll start to watch those. And that was one of them. Yeah, it was very fascinated to see the whole idea of the cabaret scenes that we have or the nightclub in Brain the Wooden Die and also in The Head and then also in Professor Dowell and that whole idea of the switching of bodies with the different heads for the women whereas you have the um, brain is interesting that it's the woman's head that stays disembodied through the majority of it where it's more of a older professor character in the other two who is kind of this mentor that the younger upstart has decided to take care of. I guess that kind of speaks to your reanimator thing that you were talking about with uh, Professor Herbert West coming in and wanting to take apart everything that the older professor has you know, worked at at the university. Right, usurp his authority, right. 
Exactly. But yeah, that was interesting to see just really the thing that got me was the whole idea throughout the three of those, the whole disposable women kind of thing. It's just like women are out there. They are a collection of bodies and other parts, and they should be put back together in the way that really makes men happy. I guess it speaks to that idea of Frankenhooker that Rob and I discussed a couple of years ago, taking the best parts of women and recombining them into the perfect woman. And really that's like in the head, you've got the beautiful nurse who's got the hunchback and then you've got the other woman who's got the dancer's body and why not take the head off of one and put it on the other one? Now you've got one perfect woman and one thing that you just kind of dump at the railroad tracks. And that just it's amazing to me how that kind of carried through with all three of these films. Well, I think in Professor Dowell and the head, we have these ancillary male characters who are sensitive and who recognize the humanity in these female characters, both before and after their reconstitution. In Professor Dowell, we have Professor Dowell's son. What is his name? Alex or Aaron? I can't remember. Uh, and in the head, we have the, the sculptor and artist who is sketching the dancer, the stripper, uh, Naked and the Devil, the, you know, the, the character who they ultimately you know, harvest her body. And then when the newly reconstituted, naive nurse with the new body flees Dr. Ood in the in the mansion and, and and moves downtown, the sculptor sort of takes her under his wing and becomes her protector. So there there does seem to be, at least in those two films, a subject position offered to the viewer that that sees these women both pre and post transplant, you know, as being human beings. Uh, the brain that wouldn't die is really interesting to me because in almost all of these other movies, the head in the pan is some kind of hyper powerful patriarchal figure, a scientist or a conquistador. Uh, in the case of Donovan's brain, this this evil scheming capitalist, you know, this this guy who can build and destroy financial empires just just through the sheer force of his, you know, brain activity. What we see in a lot of exploitation movies is why they're so fascinating to me. Is one of the formulas for renewing an exploitation film plot is to reverse the genders. In 1965, Russ Meyer made this totally undistinguished action movie about a motorcycle gang called Motor Psycho. Uh, and it was okay. Uh, but the next year, he decided to make the, the psychotic gang women. And he made Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. And this is considered one of the great masterpieces of exploitation cinema. And I think, I think one of the things that Joseph Green hit on in The Brain That Wouldn't Die that was just completely brilliant is why don't we make the evil scheming head a woman? And that just drastically alters all of the relationships that coalesce around the head in the pan. So I think that in various ways, this sort of 
deep misogyny, Mike, that you have pointed out in these movies is pulling the film in one direction. And then there's there's this other weird stuff in there that kind of doesn't fit with that project, pulling it back in the other. And I think that's one of the reasons that these movies continue to fascinate us so much. And we shouldn't forget one of Rob's favorite films while we're having this discussion, The Thing with Two Heads. Oh, yes. There you go. The Thing with Two Heads, Ray Milland and Rosie Greer. How can you go wrong? Is this supposed to be some kind of joke? Yes, that is a great, great film. Yes. Yes. You know, the, the, the first one of the first horror movies I ever saw in the theaters was I saw a double bill of the abominable Dr. Fives and the incredible two headed transplant. And I, I thought that was really great. And then the thing with two heads came out and the TV trailers for the thing with two heads completely disguised the fact that it was a comedy. It was a comedy. It, was, yeah, it is a comedy. Yeah. But you know, oh, car it's a documentary. Yeah. 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 But I mean, it's a deliberate comedy with, you know, you know, cop cars smashing into each other and, you know, all that, all that stuff. Uh, but yeah, I, I, so I went to see the movie when I was 12 and I was really disappointed that it was played for laughs. I was really hoping for something more intense and terrifying. So, so Rob, tell us about your relationship with the thing with two heads. I'd love to hear more about this. I just added it to the list. I just, <laughs> oh, okay. I was just oh, okay. like, while we're talking about films with heads in them, there we go. Yeah, and you're right. Incredible two-headed transplant, and wasn't there one called The Manster? Yes, The Manster. That you know, that was actually uh, the co-feature for uh, Eyes Without a Face when that was released uh, by UA in 1962. So uh, uh, Eyes Without a Face was released here as Horror Chamber of Doctor Faustus. With the surgical scene cut out, by the way, and the Manster was its co-feature. Kevin, the name of your book is Ghouls, Gimmicks, and Gold. How would you describe it for folks who are listening at home? Ghouls, Gimmicks, and Gold is a project that I really enjoyed working on because I was always curious about where these movies that I loved as a kid came from, and and why some of them appeared to sort of come out of nowhere that no one had heard of them you know and all my friends and i had seen them and you know driving movie theaters on tv and stuff like that and when i was in grad school at the university of wisconsin one of my professors specialized in the history of movies as a business uh, his name was tino balio he wrote a great anthology called the american film industry and in that class we talked about the history of hollywood as a business from the nickelodeon boom from you know, 1900 507 up to the present day and we talked about how movies the, the kind and the number of movies that are made change as the movie business changes and what i discovered was that all the movies that i loved as a kid all the horror movies that i loved as a kid came from this post-war period of the 50s to the late 60s you know essentially in the book i i deal with like house of wax denied the living dead and rosemary's baby those are the those are the sort of bookends of the book and and so what i did was i talked about how the movie business changed how hollywood studios had to sell off their theaters and how tv initially cut into the film audience uh how hollywood courted the youth audience how the film industries of great britain and italy became foreign centers of production for movies made with hollywood money and what i discovered is with each of these shifts in the 
economic or the business landscape of Hollywood, with each of these shifts came a new crop of the movies that I loved, the horror movies that I loved to watch as a kid. So I decided to work on a book-length project that traces the various changes in the American movie business from roughly 1952, which was the uh, appearance of uh, Buona Devil, the first 3D movie, to 1968, which was the year in which Night of the Living Dead appeared, Rosemary's Baby appeared from Paramount, and the Motion Picture Association of America begins its film rating system. And I think we can see, if you look at the horror movies, you can say that there's Night of the Living Dead, there's Rosemary's Baby, and there's the rating system, and the combination, the confluence of those three development is what drastically alters the landscape of American horror movies in the 70s. You know, you, you can look at one of those three events, and you can see how almost everything plays out. So I went through, and I found an illustrated film to use as a test case or a case study for each of these shifts. And when I was finished with the book, I found that I had helped explain where some of these movies came from, even those weird movies that were only on TV that never played in theaters, those weird Euro horror movies, some of the early Jess Franco films, Japanese horror films such as uh, Matango, which was released to TV under the title Attack of the Mushroom People. This had to do with uh, a shortage of color TV programming in the mid-1960s. Local stations, everybody was switching to color, and there wasn't enough color programming. Uh, and so foreign genre movies were just picked up in these huge packages that were just dumped into local TV stations trying to find color stuff to put on the air. And when I was done, I had something that could sort of fit together as a book. And uh, Duke University Press was uh, interested in the project. And I've been really, really grateful for the wonderful response that the book has gotten in the last 10 years or so since it came out in 2004. The thing that I found the most fascinating was when you were going through and explaining a lot of the package deals that different stations would pick up because it used to be the joke around here like oh well channel seven must own this movie because they play the hell out of it you know and you could almost see it start to deteriorate you know as you go through the years but it was just like you know oh god you know channel 50s is showing this one again channel 20 is showing this movie one more time i never realized that the joke about different stations owning different things was actually kind of a reality that's absolutely true the films were put together in thematic packaging and it was originally filler the important thing to understand about the horror movies is it's it's like it's non-nutritional filler for drive-in movie theaters at one point for former subsequent run inner city theaters in the 50s when you know everybody moved to the suburbs and theater construction hadn't kept up with changing population patterns and so the inner city theaters didn't have anything to play uh, and this this continues into the 70s with the you know the kung fu movies and the black exploitation movies so you know wherever there is a product shortage whenever distribution changes and there's a product shortage horror films are always used to fill the gap in the early years of vhs right everybody had a vcr there weren't enough movies to rent suddenly there was this 
onslaught of horror movies on VHS at your local video store. It's just it's kind of the way it functions in the business. And in the case of TV, the demand for time, for broadcast time, was so insatiable, they didn't book individual films. They booked packages of movies, in some cases, 20, 30, and 40 films at a time. And what distributors found was that if they package the films thematically, package of westerns, a package of sword and sandal movies, a package of Euro bond knockoffs, a package of horror films, that these movies, these packages would just, it was a license to print money. And that's you know one of the reasons that, that these specialized horror showcases and specialized sword and sandal showcases later in the 80s, the Kung Fu Theater, that was World Northall, the, who, which owned the rights to tons and tons of Shaw Brothers movies, heavily edited them and put them in TV circulation after the drive-ins and inner city theaters had all closed out. Uh, this idea of thematic packaging – uh, both in terms of the showcase when the films were televised and and the way they were distributed to the TV stations, it's absolutely true that if you were an obsessive compulsive kid who was a horror fan, you could remember the scratches and splices in the brain that wouldn't die or the creeping terror when it showed on channel 29 because it was the same print i doubt seriously if some of these films were ever even returned to the distributor i would imagine some of these films stayed as a package in the vault of a station and they just cut a check to the syndicator every year just to keep them and I guess this really kind of leads to the whole idea of horror hosts in these different type of programs because you had the package of movies and it was kind of a giving new life to it almost. Oh, I think that's true. It get, the horror hosts gave these movies local appeal. And that was a huge thing that a TV station could do one of two things. It could originate local programming or it could show syndicated programming. And the horror host was a form in which the broadcast had both the local appeal of original programming and the pre-sold properties of syndicated movie programming. So it, it was it was kind of a perfect thing. If y'all are old enough to remember this, the TV commercials during these midnight horror host things – uh, aluminum siding companies and tire stores and you know I mean it was it was very very downscale local advertising you know used furniture stores John Waters loves to uh, remember that in Baltimore the sponsor of the local horror show was a, a local wig maker Mr. Ray who he he parodies his voice in Pink Flamingos when he becomes the narrator and the voice of Mr. J. So the horror hosts were crucial in making these off-hour filler ancient movies appealing to the local market. I just find it interesting that you peg it with Rosemary's Baby because obviously that was William Castle. And William Castle, I'm sure, is near the beginning of this whole cycle as well. It certainly is. William Castle 
appears several times uh, uh, in the book. How could he not? But one of my favorite scenes in Rosemary's Baby that until I wrote this book, I, no one had ever pointed this out. And it's so obvious to me. When Guy and Rosemary move into the apartment, which is, of course, the Dakota, the place where John Lennon was later murdered, and they discover that there's this geriatric coven of socially maladroit Satanists living above them. The person who shows them around the apartment is played by Elisha Cook Jr., who is the same actor who led the members of the haunted house party from room to room in William Castle's house on Haunted Hill. So he brings back this guy who was a crucial part of the success of one of his earliest low-budget films to play a similar role in a movie that he genuinely believed was going to be his stepping stone from making programmers as a director to uh, you know making you know genuine big budget A features, and he originally, of course, bought the novel Rosemary's Baby while in galley proofs from Ira Levin. I think it was published by Random House, I think, or Ballantine or somebody. Uh, anyway, he bought the book when it, before it had been published. He bought the movie rights, and he originally wanted to direct it himself. And when Paramount signed a deal with Polanski, Castle said – Castle was not a man of great humility – uh, Castle said, you know, I think it would be better if Polanski directed this film. And the film ran into all kinds of uh, budgeting and scheduling problems, and, and Castle was extraordinarily patient and gracious as Polanski's shooting schedule telescoped and as the budget of the film increased and stuff, because he really believed that that movie was going to be his ticket out of B films. So it's it's definitely true uh, that Rosemary's Baby is a sort of transitional work in so many ways. If someone would have said in 1958, you know, William Castle is going to be producing prestige literary adaptations at Paramount, I mean, people would have just burst out laughing. So we've talked a lot about the tax shelter films in the United States. Have you ever thought about doing a sequel work on the tax shelter films that moved up to Canada? One of the fascinating things about Canadian film production, of course, is that in Canada – Actual government support was there for exploitation filmmakers. For example, the early films of David Cronenberg were a combination of tax shelter films and government production funding pool finance films. I mean, I'm sure you all know the story of Shivers that you know the Canadian Parliament. Uh, practically called for Cronenberg's scalp when it was known that Shivers was produced with federal production money and that it was going to be distributed in the U.S. and that you know Americans were going to say, well, so this is what they're up to in filmmaking up there in Canada. But that would be a great idea to talk about uh, tax shelters in Canada. Uh, that's a, that's a that's a wonderful. Wonderful thought. Well, you can thank me later when you write the dedication for your new book, dude. You are on. You are on page X, or page page uh, smaller case I. That's the nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Qu'est-ce que tu fais là? 
Allez, viens. Non, 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 pas ici, c'est pas possible. Oh, mais pourquoi ah, Mais tu cries trop fort, tu le sais bien. Déshabite, toi. Dans ce cas, éteins la lumière. Pourquoi Parce que je suis pas encore guérie. En effet, tu es mieux faite pour l'amour que pour jouer à la guerre. Comment me trouvez-vous, Raphaël Sinistre. C'est un chapeau le germain efféminé. Oh, excellence C'était l'ambassadeur des États-Unis. L'ambassadeur des États-Unis Et alors, c'est les quatrièmes ambassadeurs qu'on arrête Le résultat, c'est qu'ils bombardent leurs propres troupes au moins une fois par semaine. Mais non, madame, s'ils bombardent leurs propres troupes, c'est qu'ils ont leurs raisons. Vous avez besoin d'un jardinier, n'est-ce pas ah, Oui, 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 en effet. Oui. Alors voilà, je sollicite ce poste. Enfin, monseigneur. Vous... Ne vous étonnez pas, chère madame. Vous savez, l'Église a beaucoup changé. Nous, vous savez, nous ne sommes pas contre les étudiants. Au contraire. Mais qu'est-ce que vous faites quand vous avez une chambre envahie par les mouches Vous prenez une tapette et pam, pam. Plus de mouches. J'ai lu que Miranda détient le record du monde du nombre d'homicides par tête d'habitants. Est-ce vrai Non, colonel. Vous vous trompez. Pas du tout. Il paraît qu'on tue pour un oui, pour un non, gratuitement. passait à l'époque où la police, elle essaya toute force de se faire aimer par la population. Tu te rappelles Vous devez les relâcher immédiatement. Mais enfin, commissaire, on n'arrête pas les gens comme ça. Qu'est-ce que ça veut aussi. dire enfin. Allez, on tout ça. Non, enfin. Allez. Relâchez vos prisonniers et ne cherchez pas à savoir pourquoi. Next week, rounding out 2013 with a pair of shows that highlight Mike's and yours truly's favorite films of all time. So next week is my week. We're talking about Louis Buñuel's The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. And you know the rules. Whenever I say that name, you got to take a drink. So make sure to have an ambulance on speed dial and prepare to have your stomach pumped at the end of that episode. Anyway, want to thank this week's guests for coming on, Kevin Fry, Joseph Gillespie, and Tom Civic. You can learn more about them over at our website, projection-booth.com. Also want to thank this week's special guest co-host, Kevin Heffernan, for joining us in on the Brain That Wouldn't Die, talking about his book, what is the latest with you, sir, in terms of the book? Any additional work that you're doing or uh, anything you want to highlight? Oh, thanks, Rob. I'm working on two books now. Uh, one book is tentatively titled Channels of Pleasure, and it's an industrial and cultural history of moving image pornography after 1994. And the second book is called tentatively its working title is from beavis and butthead to tea party nation dumb white guy politics and culture in america those both sound so good 
really. I mean, thanks, Mike. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I love the titles, and uh, yeah, we'll have to have you back when you've got those done, especially when you have the moving image pornography book out there, because uh, yeah, not a whole lot of stuff written about or talked about after 94. I'm very curious to see what kind of stuff you highlight. Well, thank you, and when that gets finally done, we can uh, record the show in the day room of the old folks' home, where we'll all be sitting in front of the spittoon, I guess. All right, so we will have links over to where you can pick up Kevin's book Ghouls, Gimmicks, and Gold over at our website, projection-booth.com. That's also a good place to visit for links to our Facebook page, our free app for your iPhone, Kindle, Android, all that kind of stuff, and to leave us comments that you may have. So remember, folks, please drive safely and always buckle up. Tooling down the highway doing 79. I'm a twin pipe popper and I'm feeling fine. Hey, man, dig that. Was that a red stop sign? Fusion, transfusion. I'm just a solid mess of contusions. Never, never, never gonna speed again. Slip the blood to me, bud. I jump in my rod about a quarter to nine. I gotta make a date with that chick of mine. I cross the center line. Man, you gotta make time. Transfusion, oh man, I got the cotton picking convolutions. I'm never, never, never gonna speed again. Shoot the juice to me, Bruce. My foot's on the throttle and it's made of lead, but I'm a fast riding daddy with a real cool head. I'm a gonna pass a truck on the hill ahead. Transfusion, transfusion, my red corpse suckles are in mass confusion. Never, never, never gonna speed again. Pour the crimson in me, Jimson. I took a little drink and I'm a feeling right. I can fly right over everything, everything in sight. There's a slow poking cat, I'm gonna pass him on the right. Transfusion, I'm a real gone pale face, and that's no illusion. I'm a never, never, never gonna speed again. Pass the claret to me, Barrett. A rolling down the mountain on a rainy day. Oh, when you see me coming, better start to pray. I'm a cutting up the road and I'm the boss all the way. Transfusion, oh doc, pardon me for this crazy intrusion. I'm never, never, never gonna speed again. Pump the fluid in me, Louie. I'm burning up the freeway early this morning. I'm a passing everybody. Oh, nothing but corn, man, out of my way. I don't drive with my horn. Transfusion, oh nurse, I'm gonna make a new resolution. I'm never, never, never gonna speed again. Put a gallon in me, Allen. Oh, barnyard drivers are found in two classes. Line crowding hogs and speeding jackasses. So remember to slow down today. Hey, Daddy-O, uh, make that type O, huh? a boy.
Ich verkaufe. 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 Ich verkaufe.